This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello everybody, welcome to the latest edition of the Royal Blue Podcast. My name is Joe Thomas, I am the Everton FC correspondent. Alongside me have our regular contributor, Gal Buckland, who's also on Merseyside, and from the shores of Lake Geneva... We have Chris Beasley as well. Well, where do we go? I mean, it's Thursday lunchtime, Thursday just afternoon, as we say this, and it's been a very, very busy day for the Blues already. We spoke at the we spoke on Monday in the last podcast about how Everson don't do summer breaks and quiet periods over the summer. Well, today has been a, a massive, massive kind of that ex- example of that with with news coming in from all over the place. Really, I think there's there's only one place it can be is appropriate to to start, and that's probably on matters off the pitch really and that's with as I'm sure most people will be aware of as the time we're listening to this Deli Ali's interview with Gary Neville for the overlap with Sky um, for so long I think a lot of us have been wondering quite what has been the background to, to Deli Ali's difficult period on the on the football pitch obviously such a golden talent who played a key role again Tottenham Hotspur to the Champions League semi, uh, Champions League final England to the World Cup semi-final and he's clearly struggled since then. Well, well now we, we have some answers. Um, Chris, I'm going to go to you, but I, I, I'll add the caveat for the listeners that obviously we've been in Lake Geneva. I know you've already been working around the squad um, today. Have you had much of a chance to, to listen or, or read what, what Delhi's been saying? I've seen um, what you've obviously written today, Joe, and uh, so I've not seen the, the, the interview, uh, interview in, in full. As it went, and I know Everton have have responded to it in, in regards to their reply to uh, to Gary Neville's tweet. Who obviously Gary Neville was the one who interviewed him. Um, I think we've known with Deli Ali that there's been there's been problems that long predate um, his transfer to Everton, and, and uh, like, like you say, Joe, we, it's been that the million dollar question, hasn't it? We have nobody's been able to sort of put their finger on it. Just what that might. What might be there's been lots of wild speculation of what it could be and a lot of that rather been quite fanciful but um, we know from a footballing point of view what a massive talent he was I mean see him in this part of the world now but um, the famous um, Swiss football observatory who do all these sort of scientific um, measurements only about four years ago they rate him as the world's most valuable midfielder and um, such a fall from grace you know, can't be explained in football terms. And say, you know, he should be at the peak of his powers now. I did a tweet earlier responding to your piece, Joe, and he was 27 years of age. Should be absolutely in, in his peak years as a, as a footballer and instead, and now he, he, his career has drifted so much. So uh, I suppose it sort of sheds lights where, on, on what a, a tough situation he's been in facing um, off the pitch and kind of explains um, where that, uh, that big dip has, has come from. It's, it's a very tragic situation that, that, that the player um, faces. And unfortunately, I mean, given the constraints of the deal as well, which obviously brought him to Everton on a free transfer, but with the payments that kick in, it, it's difficult to see how, how he actually has, has a future at the club, even though he's been very um, glowing in, in the support that the club have actually offered him. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, obviously, this is a, a poignant reminder, one that we all need, and probably 
probably this is a very good time of the year to have it amid the transfer window and pre-seasons when you know social media and F- speculation about everything kind of gets whips up into as frenzied as it ever is going to be. I think this is probably a poignant reminder, Gav, that you know, there are far more important things in life than football and that, you know, obviously... Yeah, the, the the lens through which we view a lot of things is, is through football and what goes on on the football pitch. But, you know, every single person who's out there involved in a beautiful game, just like us three, just like anybody that's listening, you know, they all have their own personal issues to deal with. Um, it doesn't matter who you are, how big a profile, how much money you've got seeking help. The first step to getting better is, is always the hardest one to make. And it's clear that, you know, it was taken a hell of a lot of strength Delhi to have sought that help in the first place and then also then to speak to about it in the hope of inspiring others who may be struggling to try and seek help and have the encouragement to seek help themselves gathered I think that's probably what we we need to take from this most importantly is that number one the most crucial element is the fact that Delhi's now saying he's in a good place that's the best piece of that's a bit best piece of the whole interview and number two you know it's clearly would have taken a huge amount of strength for him to have opened up in the way he has and he should be applauded for that yeah, I mean, going box your first going, Joe, I think is really important in all of this is that heaven, as we know, there's a club where people have attracted a lot of criticism and abuse over several years. And I think it's long forgotten that they're just people doing the jobs, aren't they, at the end of the day, however badly that you think they're doing them or whether they should be there. And they're only people and they, they have... Yeah, everybody, as Dali Ali alluded to this, didn't he? You know, everybody is a person that they their, their own mental health to, to look after. And we should always remember that when we're even on this podcast, you get people sticking out. <laughs> is it, you know, the people, they're, they're just human beings, aren't they? You know, and they and after their mental health well being to, to look after. And, and we should always remember that. And it's only gay. And, you know, what, and that's what Dali Ali sort of. Show today, didn't he? That there's far more important things and deeper things than just playing just playing football. I, I've I've seen the interview, Mike. I, I know, I, I know sort of there's a don't understand long long understand that his childhood possibly wasn't the best, but just think it's a medical medical. I become a professional footballer. I mean, yeah. just I was, it's just what a time that is. Never mind like playing for England and as Chris said, being one of the top rated midfielders in the year. Just getting onto a football pitch at professional level, given his given his like background and that's also childhood that you'd like to think not none of us on this pod would would even begin to understand. And 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 to do that it was just just incredible. I saw an incredible achievement. Uh, and then, as you say, I think then there's, there's, there's the other side of the coin there is, is, is to come out and speak speak about it. And and, and uh, the thing is with Dali Ali, he's not the type, he has one image, doesn't he, things, which he was talking about the party image and stuff like that, but he's obviously not like that at all. He's obviously a deep-thinking, intelligent guy, and that, that's reflected in the way he plays football as well. And I think to come out and talk about such issues and such honesty in a public forum is, um, I think that's also a hell of an achievement as well. So, um, good, you know, best wishes for him for the future. And it's good to see that he, he says he's in a, a good place. But I think anything, you, you, when you, you, you listen to him talk, it's like anything from now on, and oh, it's, it's a bit of a bonus, isn't it? As, as long as he's mentally 
Rice. He does stuff on the football pitch. That's fantastic. But that doesn't necessarily... If he doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean he's failed. And uh, yeah, I think it was a solitary reminder to us all about there's far more important things in life than football. And, and I think we should we should always remember that. And, I think, uh, another good element is to also bear in mind, I think, is and obviously, you know, there's there's been a lot of scrutiny around Everton over the last eighteen months, last six months in particular, and you know we've spoken a lot about the the issues at the club and and things that you know there's a, a strong argument to suggest that where they have gone wrong, but. One thing that does seem clear, and and it's not just Delhi's comments that that come into my mind when I say this, but you know, over the last eighteen months, we've had you know Damari Gray, we've had Dominic Calvert Lewin speak about similar issues and battles with with social media and um, and mental health. It feels like Everton is like Finch Farm is is a supportive place for players that are going through issues like this. And I think that's probably something that the club deserves for us to recognise as well. I mean, what do you think on that, Chris? Do you agree? Yeah, definitely, Joe. Like you say, it's all too easy, isn't it, unfortunately, to point out uh, all the the reasons both on and off the pitch why Everton in many ways have been at the lowest seven has been such an easy target in, in, in recent years but to be fair and in Everton's defence like say Joe this, this is one area where they've been really strong and one that sh- should be uh, applauded from, from those outside the club shouldn't sort of um, take it as a given that you're gonna I mean it'd be nice to think that you would but such a support in, in in those kind of circumstances, and you'd like to believe that there's it, it's encouraging for, for for the group there. I mean, so it's a phrase that Sean Dyche often uses the group, doesn't it, when he talks about his his squad of players, both players and staff. Uh, then there is that support for one another. So yeah, at a time when you know, the brick bats have been coming in various directions, Revan, and understandably so in in, in many res- respects, because as I keep saying, uh, you know. It, saying worst um, equivalent point scoring in the club's history you know I'll keep banging the drum on that one certainly but um, yeah um, this is one area where uh, Everson should be applauded and Delhi has said that himself hasn't he and then that direct quote in that she was very glowing in the support that he received from the club well we woke up this morning to Delhi's you know emotional and and powerful interview with Sky on, on, on the overlap and also, we're lost in, in all of this is the fact that Fred Lampard has also been speaking as well in the, the diary of the CEO. Um, touches on his time at Everton rather than goes into any great detail. Um, Gav, hey, this is a no slight whatsoever on you if you haven't seen this because there's been a lot already. <laughs> have, you seen, have, you seen, have you seen any of his comments? Because if not, I'll just... And, uh, I, I, can I, can I just? I think there's an important point though to be made about the Dariari position before you do though. Joe. He's he's an employer as a as a legal responsibility in this instance to 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 for a certain amount of their their employers employees health and safety. So yeah. I don't go to see Evan doing stuff. They have a legal responsibility to do quite a lot of that as well. Obviously, what the club has done is appears to be above and beyond what you would normally expect them to do by law. But in this, you know, my employer has a certain responsibility in that area to me and, and yours does to yourselves. So it, it, it's good to give give the club, club credit, but they, it's always important in this instance. Remember, they also have a legal responsibility to do so as well. 
<laughs> of course, of course. Well, Frank Lampard's been speaking about his more about his career in general, but also a little bit about uh, about Everton. I'm going to read through some of his his quotes. Um, so one of the one of the things he does talk about is 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 the squad. He goes. And this is this. I think it's a general point he's making about football, but I'll, I'll expand on it after we've done it. Because when you're working with a group, you have to be careful of that one because not every player has your mentality. You either have to try and bring them up to the party, or if not, they're going to have to not be there if you're going to have success. You have six or seven players where you know what you're going to get every day. They're going to train, come in, and be active every day. You're going to have the middle group and the one saying, I'm just coming to training, or I'm a bit sore today. The bar raises can take some time to raise the bar, but the bar lowerers can get you very quickly. That negativity can slip in and be really contagious. In football, winning is everything. And that is obviously relative to if you're Manchester City or Everton. Everton will win 35% of games at best at the moment. And you know that. You know there'll be 65% of weeks that aren't great. The bar lowerers can lower that quickly. Whereas if you can get the bar raises to take control, you can get there. I thought that was quite interesting comments because I thought... That- from speaking to people in and around the game, one of the things post Lampard that, that got the impression was, was was almost backed up by that point where it felt like he had a core group of players that he trusted and put a lot of faith in and perhaps had difficulty in bringing up the others to either the standards that he required and sometimes that perhaps meant leaving them out or ostracizing them as opposed to perhaps getting them feeling involved. So obviously we know we had the likes of Connor Cody and James Sarkowski, who we clearly trusted and valued, but we also we had issues with some of the other players, most notably perhaps Abdullah Dekore. And obviously he doesn't mention names or anything like that, but I thought it was quite interesting to read that because we know that they fell out towards the end of his time, but we also know from what we saw in the Sean Dyche brought to let DeCorey back into the fold. So DeCorey probably ended up being the most influential person in Everton's eventual survival from the Premier League. I when you read or listen to those comments, Chris, I mean, what do you do you think they offer any real insight into Lampard's time at Everton, or do you think it's just obvious that it, you know he's there with a group of players that you know we we've spoken about it being a Frankenstein squad of other people's ideas for the most part? I mean, do you think that it was inevitable that he would always struggle with the squad that he's got, or do you think that there's perhaps a, a failure or a narrowness of mindset that he failed to kind of get the most out of some of those fringe players? Uh, it was interesting. Obviously, you mentioned Abdullah Dakori there, Joe, because he was obviously the one who was dropped in his in the last days of Lampard. And uh, interestingly, obviously, I've been up at the team hotel earlier and I'm going back there le- later today and uh, in between my, my interviews actually saw Abdullah Dakori in and about around the grounds and um, he was talking to a, a family of, uh, of well, I, I, they weren't Evertonians, but, you know, they, they were football fans and... Uh, he was having a lovely conversation with them and um, seemed, you know, he's still like a model professional. I mean, it's not like somebody has to be right, somebody has to be wrong in this one and somebody's good, somebody's bad, you know. Players and managers do fall out um, all the time. But, um, yeah, they, I, I'm not sure if Abdullah the Corey could necessarily be deemed one of those, nor does Frank actually say that he was. But in terms of Frank Lampard and his, his time at Everton, perhaps Frank tries to be too idealistic. We all know he's a hugely popular man in the hall, maybe not with Decore, but um, 
know, the way he conducted himself and the way he went about himself. But ultimately, it's a, it's a results-based business, and Frank knows that more than anyone. He's possibly one of the uh, greatest English midfielders of, of the Premier League era, and a serial winner with Chelsea. Many at Stamford Bridge consider him to be their, their greatest ever player. But he, he came to, to Everton with a sort of... Uh, it's hard to gauge just how good he'd been as a manager from his time at Derby County and Chelsea. And I suppose Everton was the acid test with that. And ultimately he failed, came in in uh, very difficult circumstances where a club that was uh, divided after Rafael Benitez's time there. Obviously got them over the line just in that first season. But to make no bones about it, Everton were heading for their first relegation in 72 years on the Frank Lampard. And uh, maybe it's because, you know, it, there'd been much greater managers than him who'd, who'd struggled. As, uh, ironically, the great Carlo Ancelotti of all people, um, went to Real Madrid on the back of uh, a spell at Everton where if you'd been anyone other than the great Carlo he'd have been um, called into question for that that last season at Everton so that shows you just how tough the job is yeah and, um, it, it, it's it's difficult I mean Frank's trying to sort of say his piece now isn't he and like you say he's reflecting back on a more sort of general piece about his, his life and times in football but you only have to look up again Difficult circumstances, but look what happened when he went to Chelsea after his his spell at Everton. And he hardly carried and caught, you know, um, covered himself in glory there, didn't he? Uh, I think if anything, if Frank had um, sort of left Everton a bit earlier in the season and gone to Chelsea a bit um, earlier in the season, it may, bizarrely even Chelsea might have been dragged into that relegation fight. So yeah, Frank Lampard, lovely man. One of the greatest midfielders this country's ever produced, but uh, not sure where he goes next to his managerial career. Unless, unless maybe the Saudis might offer him some big box so he can go join Stevie in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for that, Chris. Uh, someone put 50, 50 pence in you, 50 Swiss francs in you there, I think. And maybe <laughs> been on your Toblerone. Uh, Frank Rampard also said, and this is quite interesting. The most important person at a club is, in my opinion, the owner. It's about the structure at the top as they set the tone financially and on recruitment. You will only be as good as the players you recruit. When I finished my first season at Everton, we stayed up by the skin of our teeth and Mashiri rang me to say congratulations, but Frank, don't rest. 80% of your work for next season will be done in the next month. It was recruitment. 20% of will be what you do next year and 80% will be bringing in the right players. Now, Gav, for all that Chris has said there about the questions I think is fair to ask about Lampard's managerial ability, the, the counter argument to that is obviously also, and there's also some validity in it, the fact that Emerson is and has been for quite a while um, probably a a perfect storm of, of problems for a manager to enter and get to. And I think you, Chris mentioned there that Lampard failed as a manager. Well, he obviously succeeded in his first task and quite emphatically at keeping Everton up. Managed to do that. And, and the bonus being that he seems to kind of get us and healthy in days now to a point where it felt like you know, there was a lot more unity between say parts of the club and parts of the fan base we know what's happened since now we, there's no way that you can look back at Lampard's second season as it were or what there was of it and say that that was a success obviously I think Chris is right I think Everton were heading down as far as you can predict these things when he left in January there was only one place Everton were going but does that not perhaps give you some insight into the difficulties of the job that he's had and maybe the fact that his hands were tied when Everton just it stayed up 
She just stayed up, but like he says, by the skin of the teeth, the owner rings up, says 80% of the work for next season is going to be done in the next month for recruitment. Well, we all know what happened in the next month. They sold Richarlison. They brought James Sarkovsky in a free. They didn't do a hell of a lot more until a bit later on in the transfer window. Yeah, um, I was just thinking, <laughs> think from the two, the two sets of quotes you've given so far. So Frank's blamed the players, now he's blaming the owner then, isn't he? Um, and I, I disagree with what he says about the 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 owner being the most important person at the football club, most important person at the football club, has and always will be the manager. And um, in, and I, I think that we should rem- remember that. I think Frank also me I'm not like defenestrating Frank here. I think he also he didn't he didn't walk into a situation that should have been a surprise. So he he probably knew what the squad was like. I mean, if he didn't don't have to go on social media for a, a day before he took the job to see what machine he was like. So none of this was a surprise to him. And he's also been in the game long enough as as Chris was saying and a steam player to know that, you know, you don't do eighty percent of your work in the summer, do you? As a club. I mean, come on. You know, see what's important, but you don't just say, Oh, we've increased as well this this summer and you know, so we know you know, we're not going holiday that since for six months. It's it, it, the hard work is in the, the season and the winning games. And going back to what he was saying about players, there's some players, what did he say? Ball hours or something. Well, Frank, you're being paid like X millions of pounds a year to get them to hire the bar again, aren't you? And, I, I, and the, the, those comments with the, the, I mean, there's some stuff he said after the game, where, games where you think, well, actually, You've not done the job properly there, Frank, but he's, he's sort of inferred or explicitly blamed the players. And these two sets of comments didn't keep him with his, his psyche, I think. That said, I haven't got the bad stuff out of the way. <laughs> I think, you know, that there were, yeah, in, he was dealt some bad cards, um, but he knew that. I think he did just about well enough to in the first season to keep us up. I think he would also as well... He did bring a collectiveness, didn't he, to the to the fan base and the players and stuff like that, because uh, you can associate with them. He was good with the media. He was good good with um, as a sort of raise the profile of Adam. Um, and so I did have a problem with him with last summer, but to me the problem is this season, wasn't it? Just gone. I mean, woeful, really woeful management performance. So it's like you know the stats bear that. I was it three wins and. 20 games or whatever it was and some heavy defeats in that time poor performances so I think as much as I think his first half was clear uh, was manageable and acceptable I just I just I failed to see some of the you know the positives of, of last season uh, you know even allowed for some some tough luck with injuries on occasions you know Carver-Lewin B say a, a prime example of that but it, it just seems I mean it sounds like an incessant interview but from and, and obviously there's only like highlight some bits but that's what I'm keeping with, with my impression of Frank when he was the manager here is that on occasions it appears to be everybody else's fault but him and um, you know so I'm not surprised in, in that context and not nothing's happened to Chelsea has it to improve you know to, to change that change that view and um, it is difficult to see where he goes now. 
you know, obviously Chris is acting as his de facto agent here. Um, put that out there. Uh, <laughs> but only, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you are closer to closer to the Middle East than us, Chris. This, uh, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. Not, uh, direction. <laughs> this is like uh, going back many, many years ago. I'm going off at a complete tangent here. If you did, you before your time, Chris, you probably remember when, when John Levy went to manage in the Middle East in the seventies. Oh yeah, after his England, he, he went by Switzerland. Okay. And, um, yeah, so it was obviously a, a stop off um, point that's been well, well trodden. Um, but yeah, I think Frank's Frank's statements they're not surprising. You know, and I'm saying Michelle, he's not been an issue, but he's got to look after him, look at himself as well as he surely. Thanks, Gav. Right, so we've covered Delhi, we've covered Frank. Now we're going to move on to Ashley Young. We're speaking at that past two. We three hours ago, Ashley Young was confirmed as an Aston Villa player. Gav, I'm going to say confirmed as an Elton player. Obviously, trying to juggle too many things here. So what's going on today? Because I'm going to come back to you, Gav. Because my next question is going to be come to Chris. I think we covered Ashley Young a lot yeah. on. On, on Monday, didn't we? So I don't think we really need to kind of go into too much depth on this. But obviously, they got the deal over the line. It's quite interesting. One of the things you said just then when talking about Fred Lampard was about his role in, in raising the profile of Everton. So obviously, he was an international. They, you know, I went out to Australia, went out to America with 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 Everton whilst Fred Lampard was in charge. And you know, for all the crowds there that were there for Everton fans, it was clear there's also a significant number of people there that were either football fans, Chelsea fans, or general Premier League fans in in both countries that wanted to get a bit of taste of Fred Lampard because of you know his personality and, and his and his profile. I think one of the things that was quite interesting. Last summer was the idea that Fred Lampard was clearly a pull to the players that did come t- to Everton. And going into this summer, I think it would have been question marks as to whether or not Sean Dyche could have replicated that. Obviously, we know he's not of the same kind of magnitude of profile as someone like Fred Lampard. It is clear, however, that he has played a big role in Evans' first recruit in Ashley Young. Ashley Young spoken highly of him, and though from speaking to people close to Ashley, he genuinely thinks a lot of Sean Dyche. And Sean Dyche is quite complimentary of him in his remarks as well from um, from, from the side in an Obviously, Sean Dyche was captain of the Watford side that Ashley Young made his you know, birth onto the scene at. Um, we're not a lot further in terms of what we already knew because it was probably Evans' worst kept secret that Young was coming in through the door um, before today, Gav. But nice to finally have a sign over the line, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think the general consensus, you know, contrary to what people maybe I believed at the start that you know this would be a die divisive point, you know, transfer. Is I think most people I've spoken to said this makes a lot of sense. I think when when it was first announced, people were saying, "Oh, yeah, I'm quite understandably so." But si- since then, when people have realised how many games he played for Aston Villa, that he's only been injured, was it twice? Been out for twice in seven years or something. One of them was COVID, I think. Um, seeing in his versatility, seeing the reaction to Aston Villa fans, uh, you know, finding out he's leaving and saying that he's wanted them to stay, and I think that it's been said that. There's people in the villa hierarchy wants them to stay. I think I think we're looking at a difference like Steve Young now, are we compared to what we were doing say a week ago in terms of what he can do for us and, and, and basically everybody else spoken to thinks it's a good good signing. Um and will give us some much needed versatility. And it, it's just interesting, isn't it? Really, I was I was thinking that he, he didn't he 
didn't he replace Lucas Ian at left back? Uh, he, well, he, he kind of covered a beat for him with him, yeah. That's oh, so he's now competing with Michel, Michelenko, who sort of replaced Lucas Ian at sort of left back. He's sort of got the circle there, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good sign and it's, it's obviously a good pro. I, I think it's incessant going back about Daesh. Is then it's just. I think he will be attractive because for some players, it depends what your personality is, I suppose. And this is something like what Frank was maybe talking about. Is you know, like the bar lowerers. If you were if you were a bar lowerer and you knew you were, but actually you knew you wanted to do well, you know, but you just had you didn't have it in your personality to sort of be, I don't know, be professional or whatever. You wouldn't you want to work for dice because you know he'd be on you all the time. Yeah, quite, quite, quite possibly. Yeah, you know, it's what you want through a manager, isn't it? Yeah. And I can see quite a few players who perhaps need, you know, all players need direction and instruction. I could see why you'd want to work for Dice because you, mm. you know that's what you're going to get, don't you? But you get yeah. with the manager, you'll just like leave it up. And, and I think some of the, yeah, the impression with Frank has been really talented supplier who would expect you to do stuff. Where, like with Dice, I think, if I was a certain type of player, I, I would want to work for him because I know he's going to instill discipline. He's going to tell me what to do. He's going to like get me fit. You know all that all that type of stuff. You know, and and I think you know like, we we underestimate that in him, don't we? Really, because we need to remember that there are players actually. That's what they want from a manager. Yeah, well, I'm told that um, Ashley Young appreciates Dice's earthy honesty, his uh, his his approach to football, and yeah, it's it's clear that Dice does have a very different approach to football than someone like, say, a Frank Lampard. Um, Yeah, or a lot of kind of the more modern personalities. Yeah, he seems to have, he seems to somehow remain calm amidst the maelstrom of just what is top flight football these days you know we, we have 24 hour rolling news there's a con we have social media there's a constant demand for answers and gratification and yeah signs of, of progress and, and positivity and Daesh seems somebody from the limited experience that are dealing with him obviously the last four years since he joined at the back end of, of January he seems somebody that is very capable of putting all that to one side and focusing on what actually matters. And it will be interesting because that's a different type of personality compared to the other managers that have tried to or that managed Deli Ali since, you know, the the the, the good days of under he had under under Pochettino. And and maybe that might be the kind of it might be that level of, of, of protectiveness and sure footedness that helps Delhi, you know, realight his career as well. Um, I don't think there's any need to talk anymore about Ashley Young, but so we'll move on to other transfer news. And this is what I want to come to you for, Chris. Uh, player that was, I mean, he was definitely a target of Everton in January. And then I wrote some stuff last month about the possibility of a move and the fact that he was clearly available. She doesn't want to go um, for him again this summer. And that's Anthony Alanga. It sounds like there's a little bit of momentum growing behind that as an option now, Chris. Now, yeah, we know he's on their radar because he was in January. Yeah. And although Deitch is no longer in charge, Elang is still a profile of player that Everton desperately need. We know player, the people are behind the scenes who have remained the same. Um, obviously liked him then and they'll surely like him now. And 
he's clearly available. Now, do you want to just let us know? Obviously, you're there with the camp. You're speaking to yeah. people. Just precisely on, on on Thursday afternoon, just where we are with Anthony Alanga. Yeah, um, there were obviously reports earlier today, which has since been amended, um, the BBC, that um, a, a bid and somewhere between 15 to 20 million have been submitted. Now, I understand that's not the case. And like I said, the BBC have, have changed their article since then. Yeah, he remains a player of, of interest for Everton. As you say, Joe, he is somebody who's been on their radar with director of football, Kevin Felwell, for, for a number of months now. Um, there was a possibility it could have been done in January, like all those other January deals, it didn't get done. Um it remains to be seen whether Everton is going to meet United's um, asking price because although he is very much, as like you say, Joe, he's, he's available for transfer. I don't think anyone's disputing that. Um, whether Everton, are go- you know, at a time where we understand funds are tight at Goodison Park, are they really going to um, out- do an outlay of that kind of money on a player who obviously um, Sweden international, very much promising prospect for the future but very much still a, a work in progress I mean it's, it's similar in a way to Dwight McNeil before he came to the club much maligned for that last season at Burnley ended in relegation he didn't score a single goal but then he ended up coming to Everton and finishing top scorer albeit a very low scoring Everton team but seven goals last season from McNeil after we had the piece with him this morning Five of those came since Dice came to the club. So you wonder whether somebody like Alanga could sort of replicate that sort of trajectory in that, you know, he fails to score for Manchester United last season. But yeah, as as it, as things stand, I'm told he's, he's just one of a number of, of um, targets being considered at, at the moment because obviously there's a lot of names um, in and around the place and I'm um, sure we need no reminder just to who they are. Similar sort of profile players, but it, it's, it's obvious to everyone. We, you know, we've seen since the start of summer that attacking options have got to be the priority for Everton and uh, a couple of new faces in that department are, are required for the start of the season. Absolutely. I think that Langer is just almost clearly available. I think some of the numbers that have been quoted by by his reports today, I think they they include clauses and you know additional things if the, if if he meets if he meets them it would trigger extra payments and things like that. I don't think he'd require fifteen to twenty million pound up front or anything like that. I think it'd be far cheaper in terms of initial outlay. The only issue there for Everton being probably not necessarily expenses to whether they could afford him, but whether or not they end up in a bidding war with someone that could drive the price up as reports in Nottingham Forest are interested in him. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how you know substantial that is, but obviously the last thing Everton would want to do is end up in a situation where the price is getting pushed up and up. Chris, you mentioned that um, people be well aware of some of the other names. Obviously, we know yeah, the uh, Wilfred Nonto leads is one of them. There were reports in Italy this week that a deal had already been done and was signed off. Mm-hmm. Um, we also understand not to not to quite be 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 the case um, from a Leeds perspective. Nonto is very much still their player who's going to have four years left on his contracts. Even though they got relegated, they considered him to be on an affordable wage and on a surface level, at least from the conversation I've been having with people around Leeds, they very much see him as a as their player and they want to keep hold of him. So the impression I get with Nonso is not that a deal couldn't be done, 
I think whoever, if anyone wants to prize them away from Leeds, I think they'll be made to work hard for it. And as we've covered with Everton, it's not clear whether or not they'd have the funds to end up in a situation where they can be really proactive on a player like that. A um, couple of others was, was Tom Heaton's being mentioned, for, um, the, the Manchester United goalkeeper that used to work with Daesh uh, at Burnley. Obviously, again, we spent a lot of time talking about this on the podcast. The, the Pajor Asmir Begovic has left... Um, quite a significant drop-off, I think it's fair to say, between what we know Jordan Pickford can do and what we know Jao Virginia or Andy Lonergan could do. That's not to say that they couldn't do an exceptional job, which some team, much of them. I think um, Heaton is a, is a player that you could see fitting in a, a, in that Everton squad, but the minute Manchester United's goalkeeping department is a mess, all the noises over there is they're not going to be letting him leave while they try and sort out the aftermath of the David De Gea situation. Um, and I also think that um, Tom Heaton's quite key if he does leave to get first team football which he obviously wouldn't get at Everton but whether or not something can get sorted out remains to be seen but I think that'd be something that'll be dealt with much later in the transfer window um, Gav when it comes to Alanga I mean Everton is the type of player that Everton need obviously you know he's attacking players winger you know he came onto the scene you know in positive fashion Manchester United had a, had a difficult season last season obviously they kept him in and around the squad throughout the year, but his difficulties, I think, were obviously he started the season when Ronaldo was still there. Um, he started the season with you know, a couple of games in Manchester United spending big money on Anthony and having signed Jane and Sancho. So he was always going to struggle a little bit there with the money that was spent on players that, that complained similar positions to him. And obviously uh, beneath him, he was probably undercut by the rise of, of Garnacho as well who obviously had a meteoric rise mm-hmm. last season but I think it's fair to say that we see he has a little bit of potential I mean is this the type of player again like Chris says perhaps a bit like Dwight McNeil that Everton can probably target this year in the sense that you have the sense that there's potential there but you might be getting them at a bit of almost the lowest ebb in their senior career because they're coming off the bad off the back of a bad season which might not actually be a bad, the bad season might not have been anything to do with them and their own contribution. It's just, as I can just explain, then touched upon the the the, the, the factors that go on around them. Yeah, yeah, I know absolutely. There's loads of players, isn't there? Over the time, you can be bought and turned out to be great players, and they can get them on the team. I'm not saying like they'll be a great player, but yeah, I think I think you can. You can take advantage of that. I mean, he'll probably give us something that he was quite patient isn't he, and stuff. I think he's he's a decent prospect. I think it boils down to without going on, we spoke at length in me on Monday about money and cash, and we don't need to go down that line. I think a lot of this will be will probably be the fee and whether we can pay in instalments and and so on. Um, perhaps will be will be the issue here. And also as well, what does that mean to to other about other members of the, the first team squad as well? You know, yeah. I possibly has been murmuring about a war we had in the last few days, and I think um, if we if we could if he comes, I could see a grey or a war be going, or possibly both. No, always a different role, but in terms of like the cash 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 difference, you know. Yeah, another point there that's been linked to who is yeah. our colleague Connor O'Neill um, wrote yeah the other day open to move to Everton I think he's considered his option that's Arno Danjuma who um, obviously 
made that dramatic U-turn in in January. It doesn't seem to be that there's any bad blood between Everton and, and him. So I think uh, he's another one that all of a sudden Everton, there's, there's there's a few options there that look relatively affordable. I think the issue with Dan Juma again would be not what happened in January or where he wants to come. Any stumbling block for him would probably be... I imagine everyone could be able to get him on loan, but it would depend if there's an obligation and how much that obligation would be. Because I think um, if those figures got got big, that might end up putting Everton off. But all of a sudden, there does seem to be movement, and and that's 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 a positive thing. Obviously, we know Everton need the players. Um, Chris, I mean, on a normal podcast, say normal podcast, we keep saying about how normal it is for things to not be normal. Everton. I mean, really, should have, we should have started by going big on how you are there on the lake shores of Lake Geneva in the sunshine and the lightning bolts from, you know, the Sean Dice can looks completely non-plus around. But, you know, can't labor this enough. You're obviously one of the few reporters out there covering the, the, the trade camp. I think you're probably going to be the only, only UK journalist out there covering the game on on Friday, what what's it like? Are you, you tell us a little bit about the camp and you know what you've seen of the situation so far, the atmosphere. How you find it out there? Yeah, and I mean, I'm about to look like I'm about to merge into this curtain here. That <laughs> with a camouflage there. Yeah, and, uh, I'm not at liberty to divulge too much about their, their actual surroundings now, but it's safe to say it's rather more plush than uh, what I am. Um, but yeah, I speak to uh, Steve Stone uh, earlier, the, the first team coach, and so. He's coming up with him uh, later on. But he was saying he, he really liked the surroundings there that, that, that they're in. Um, obviously, um, Dykes has been in the area previously with, with, with Burnley, and he thinks it, it's 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 a really good um, base that they, they've got there, and the players are they're happy, they're occupied. It's not one of those where they're climbing up the walls because there's nothing for them to do. I know there's been a lot of... Um, sort of fun and games around the place. You know, it's not just hard work. We know we take that as a given with Sean Dykes and his team that this time of year is going to be the hard grafting and the work on the fitness, albeit as Dwight McNeil pointed out to us, uh, Gaffer's Day isn't until next week when they're back at Finch Farm. So they've been spurred that at, at the altitude that, that we're at, although they are they have been getting on the bikes to training and Dwight pointed out it's the first time in a number of years he's been on on the bike, so obviously no BMX is fame for a while, but he's back in the saddle. And um, yeah, I think fun and games around them. Um, the guys saw saw them playing a bit of mini golf earlier, bit of rackets, which I wasn't aware of. It's some sort of mini tennis kind kind of uh, racket game. I'm told is big on the continent, so there's plenty for them to do in and in and around um, the area. And as like I said, the, you know the, uh, the worst thing is is, is that if the players are, are bored and not enjoying themselves, it doesn't seem to be like that at all. They they, they do seem to be embracing it. And I think the timing is just right. It's not too long. It's uh, just out here for the week and then. As we say, the the, the friendly uh, uh, tomorrow tomorrow evening now at uh, uh, the home of uh, UEFA. The, obviously, they the get the ground is at the home of UEFA, but in Neon, the the town where UEFA's headquarters are, where they take on newly promoted Swiss second tier side um, Stade Neoné. So uh, yeah, I believe I'm the only one uh, out there. So you can follow that on on the Echo blog um, tomorrow, and there'll, there'll be various updates from that. Fantastic. Well, we'll leave things there, but great to get that insight from you, Chris, and look forward on Monday to be able to hear about more of your experiences and look forward to reading some of your exclusive content. We had Dwight McNeil this morning, we've got Steve Stone to come and assure a couple of others as, as well. Well, we tried our best there to sum up what's been quite a 
an, an, an interesting day to say the least for Everton. Uh, I think we all need a little bit of time to decompress after this, but I'm sure the news will just carry on coming. Even if the news doesn't carry on coming, as Chris referred to there, we have Everton's first pre-season fiction, the game against Stadney on a on Friday evening. We will, of course, have live coverage from that match and plenty of reaction as well. So keep an eye out on our social media and on the website and on the app as well. We've been the Royal Blue Podcast. Thank you ever so much for joining us and we will speak to you again on Monday. Thank you. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.